This is episode 558 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we look at Scripture, God has a tendency to make things simple for us and categorize everything into only two groups. There's almost never a third option. For example, you have light or darkness, good or evil, heaven or hell, the wide road or the narrow path, sin versus righteousness, good fruit, bad fruit, alive, dead, spirit, flesh, blessing, curses, saving, lost. I think you get the point. And Scripture treats prophecy in the same way. You have the future of Israel, God's people, or the future of the Gentiles' nations, which is pretty much everybody else. So when we look at prophetic scriptures, we must understand which of the two groups the passages speak about. So join us today as we look at some of the most important prophetic scriptures in the Bible that speak of both the future of Israel and the future of the Gentile nations as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I do want to also tell you from the very beginning, I have no illusions about getting all this done today. If I go through and read a lot of these passages we're going to be looking at, we'll not get through it all. I'm just going to read some highlights, assuming that you'll uh, find that discovery on, uh, on your own. Now, last week we talked about hermeneutics. We talked about the, the way people interpret Scripture. And what you do is you look at the Bible and you see how God lays everything out, and then you say, wow, I see a pattern here. One of the patterns that you'll find in Scripture is God usually divides things up into two parts. So either light or darkness. Nothing in between. Doesn't talk about that. You know, God is light, and in Him there's no darkness at all. First John. There's good or evil. There's not like kind of good and kind of evil. You know, I'm kind of on a sliding scale. It's okay. You either walk by the Spirit or if you don't, you walk by the flesh. There's not like kind of spirit and kind of flesh, although we try to live that way a lot. The Bible never sees that distinction. There's sin and righteousness. There's not white sins and black sins and little sins and bad sins. It's either one or the other. You go to one of two places, heaven or hell, or not kind of like heaven, but not really big heaven, and not as bad as hell, but not really as good. It doesn't work that way. It's heaven or hell. There's blessings and curses. There's, there's good fruit and bad fruit that comes from good trees and bad trees, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit, and a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. It's either or. You're either lost or saved. Can you remember one time in Scripture where God does offer a third option? It's in Revelation chapter 3, where he says, talks about being hot or cold. He says, I'd like you to be one or the other. The two options, you can either be hot and on fire for me, or just hate me and be cold over here. But because we choose option three, which God never does, and we're in the middle and we're lukewarm, if you remember, it nauseates Christ to the point that he vomits the church in Revelation chapter 3 out of his mouth. So when we're looking at Scripture, we see God has a tendency of dividing everything up into either or, for me or against me. You love me, you don't love me. You're my disciple, you're not my disciple. And um, we uh, understand that when it comes to prophecy, it works exactly the same way. There are two major groups of prophecies. One is about Israel, the future of Israel, which is God's people. Please understand. We are not the apple of his eye. We are saved by grace. Paul talked about the fact that he saved us in order to make the apple of his eye jealous and envious of the grace he showed us. The world does not revolve around Gentiles, at least spiritually. The world does not revolve around America. We are really like a collateral blessing when God is trying to fulfill his covenant with Israel. So in all of mankind, he divides people up into two groups. He has Israel over here, and then everybody else is known as a Gentile or a pagan. They're non-people of the covenant. They're non-Israeli. They're pretty much everyone else. We see that in Scripture. You're either part of the, the tribe of Israel or you're not. And if you're a Gentile and you want to adopt the faith of uh, Jehovah God, and you want to become a, the, a part of the covenant, you become a proselyte in order to be 
you know, gra- not grafted in, ordered to be accepted into the community there, but you had to follow the rules and the laws and the commands of God's people. And God was very specific about wanting to make sure that the, his people, Israel, had nothing to do with the Gentiles, as, as Paul says in um, the New Testament, because bad company corrupts good character, as it says over and over and over again in the Old Testament, that if you intermarry, if you have relationships, if you want to become like the Gentile lost world, they will pull your heart away from me. And Israel is just a, uh, the Old Testament history of Israel is just a, a picture of that happening continually. So we have two groups. We have God's people and not God's people. In the Old Testament, the Jews believed that the only people that could ever be saved are those people who had a covenant relationship with God, that you had to be a Jew. As a matter of fact, that was the big brouhaha that took place in the church when all of a sudden Paul's going out and this this uh, centurion gets saved, and, and these people, Cornelius gets saved, and Paul's sharing the gospel with the uh, Gentiles, and the Jewish Christians are aghast because they're still thinking, no, no salvation comes outside of the covenant of Israel. So therefore, in order for a Gentile to be a Christian, they first have to become a Jew, and it was the Jerusalem council that all settled all that. So this is a major deal here. But what we find revealed in Scripture is that... Um, In the New Testament, God shows us something that was silent in the Old Testament. In other words, in the Old Testament, they were acting upon the totality of the light of revelation they had at that time, and God was going to show them something new when the church was born. And you find that in Ephesians chapter 3. Matter of fact, Ephesians is a great chapter. Uh, The first seven verses deal with the issue we're going to talk about now. And then, of course, Paul talks about, after that, the purpose of his ministry, because he wants to basically, the Lord wants to stick it in the face of the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, showing this manifold grace of God in verse number 10. And then the latter part of Ephesians chapter 3, it ends with an incredible doxology. One of my favorite verses Ever, two verses. Now to him, do you remember this one? Who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, in the church, not just for us today, but through all generations, through Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's a powerful doxology, but it begins by talking about this mystery. And because this mystery Paul is sharing was so confusing, he actually, in his letter, puts a parenthetical statement in there to help explain it a little bit. Here's what he says. For this reason, and if you want, go back and read chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, through the end of it, he's talking about with the Jews and the Gentiles, he's specifically talking to the Gentiles, he's talking about the unity they have, the oneness that they have, that they are accepted and they're not second-class citizens. So he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for who? You Gentiles. Paul's letter is written to Gentiles, Gentile Christians. That's his audience. I am a prisoner sharing this for you, that you'll understand the fullness of your faith. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, or the allotment, or the stewardship of God, where he basically is showing grace to not only the Jews, but also to you also, this dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul says, but it wasn't given to me just for me. It was given to me for you. And it was given to me by revelation. Through revelation, God made known to me the mystery. Something, and the word means something that was hidden, something that was not known. Before, it was like a secret. He's made known to me this mystery. And then he stops right there and puts this parenthetical statement in there to try to explain it. Let me, let, me, let me tell you about this mystery. As I have briefly written already, and you can look at the passages yourself where he talks about this truth in chapter 1 and chapter 2, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge or my insight into the mystery of Christ. I'm going to share it with you. I've already talked about it in the first two chapters. And now once you understand it, you'll see why I do what I do why I'm called to the people I'm called. And here's the mystery. 
which in other ages or other generations or time past was not made known to the sons of men or to the mankind in general, but it is now, right now, this mystery, God working in the Old Testament now, bringing it to a conclusion in the New Testament, it's been revealed by the Spirit to his apostles and prophets. So I'm reading. I'm sitting on the edge of my chair, and I'm going, what is the mystery? Come on, tell me, tell me what the mystery is. Well, sure, but before we do that, I want you to understand that this mystery was even prophesied in the Old Testament. Do you remember Abraham got his call? God spoke to Abraham and says, I'm going to create a whole race of people through you, a whole group of people, I'm going to create a nation out of you, and the nation is going to be so great that it's going to be greater than the stars in the sky or the sand on the sea. So therefore, in faith, I want you to leave where you are in Earl the Chaldees. I want you to take nothing with you. You know, don't bring your family or anything like that. Just leave your, your parents and, and everything that you've known. I want you to travel to a place that I will show you. And once you're there, I want you to stay and I will bless you, even in your old age. And here's what he says. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will, future tense, show you. When will I know I'm there? You'll know when I tell you. And I will make you, you, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And, here's this prophetic statement. And in you, in you, Abraham, all. Now, we talk a lot about the small words in the Greek. Um, this is the equivalent in the Hebrew of the word pas, and the word all means each and every without exception in totality. It means everything that is possibly, there's no exception to this. So he says that in you all, every single one without exception, the families, and if you look this word up, you'll find out it means more than just brother, sister, father, mother. It means group of people, it means extended family, it means clan, it means race, it means, it's a, it's, a, it's a large word here. All the families of the earth will be blessed. You, Abraham, through your faith, through the faith that was accounted to you as righteousness, through your obedience, through what I'm going to do to you, creating this nation, creating Israel, creating the apple of my eye, creating my people, creating one that I'm going to bring the Messiah through, that I'm going to be all these prophecies do through you, every single nation, every single family on the earth will be blessed, which means it's not just in time for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles, because the all includes you and me. It includes this church. They didn't understand it back then. We have 20-20 hindsight. We can look back, and it makes sense to us today. So again, Paul, um, can you tell me what this mystery was? Sure, I'll tell you exactly what the mystery was. That it's not just the Jews. Really? Yeah, that all those families include you too. It includes you guys that don't know anything about Judaism, you people that are not part of the covenant of God, you people that don't know anything about the temple or the sacrifices, never read an Old Testament passage, don't even know Isaiah from a hole in the wall. It's you Gentiles should be with the Jews, fellow heirs. Wow, so the Jews have an inheritance in God, and now we have an inheritance with God, and so they are an heir, and now we are an heir, so we're joint heirs. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that you and I have an inheritance in God, and Jesus Christ has an inheritance in God, and we are joint heirs with him as sons of God. I can't even get my mind around that. Here's the mystery. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, how much so, of the same body. Amazing how he uses that word. He's talking about the body of Christ and the church. Oh, oh, okay, so are they going to be like proselyte Christians? Are they going to be like second class? No, no, no. They're fellow heirs with you, and not only that, they're of the same body, and they're partakers of the same promise of salvation through the gospel. It's because of this mystery 
that the Old Testament prophets prophesying about the Gentile nations and about the Jewish nation at that time couldn't see that it was revealed to Paul, which drove him on to be the minister to the Gentiles, which allowed you and I to be part of his kingdom, part of his family, to, to be his sons, just like the Jews, who at this point in time have rejected him. The Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And then Paul says, this is why I do what I do, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Well, why is that a big deal? It's a huge deal, especially when we're going to start looking at Old Testament prophecies, because there's there's prophecies about Israel, and then there's prophecies about uh, the Gentile nations. So what God has done, which is pretty amazing, instead of everything now divided up into two categories, Jew and Gentile, now because of this mystery, there's a third category. It's Jew and Gentile and church. And the church is made up of redeemed Jews and Gentiles. Does that make sense? It's kind of like um, we have, if I didn't want to use Jews, I'll, since most here, I'll use Muslims. You know, we've got, the, uh, we've got two classes of people, let's say. We have Muslims, and we have everybody else who's not a Muslim. And then all of a sudden, we have this third category, which happens to be this, the church, which is made up of everybody who's not a Muslim who is redeemed, and every Muslim who is redeemed. Amen? Which is phenomenal. It's kind of, kind of amazing here. So in order for you to understand the scriptures we're going to be looking through, you have to see them through this grid. Is he talking about, um, is he talking about the Jews? Because uh, they, they have a different ending than the church does. Is he talking about Gentile nations? Well, they have a different ending than the Jews do. Is he talking about just the church? And uh, we have that Gentile nation. You don't want to confuse uh, Israel and the church as being the same entity. Um, there are some hermeneutics that do that out there. They interpret all of Scripture as already happening in AD 7. It's kind of the preterist view. And so therefore, the church and Israel are the same thing. So all the promises to Israel are the same promises to the, to the church because the church is kind of God has set aside Israel. None of that is true. The church has a separate beginning than Israel did. The church has a separate function than Israel had. The church has a different ending than Israel had. And so as we go through this, don't get tied up with the idea that the church right now is everything because there'll come a time when the church will be taken out. And when it's taken out, you will find that uh, 2 Thessalonians talk about that when that happens, the restrainer will be removed who is holding back the power of the Antichrist and the things that happen in the book of Revelation will come to fruition. And if you'll read the book of Revelation with a Gentile Christian hat on, it won't make any sense to you. Or, let me phrase that. It will be more difficult to understand it. When you put your Jewish hat on, it makes perfect sense because it's God is purging and redeeming Israel at that time and punishing the lost nations. That's why when you have um, these 144,000 evangelists that go out, they're not named Billy Graham. They're named after the 12 tribes, do you remember? Of Israel. It's all about Israel at that time. And I'll explain to you how this all works. So with all that understanding, let's begin with the Daniel passage. So turn to Daniel chapter 2. It's a very familiar story. Uh, We teach it in vacation Bible school, and the kids do little flannel graphs and, and watch videos and all that kind of stuff. We all know about uh, Daniel, and we know about the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And so sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And so I, I don't want to take time and read all of this, since hopefully you did that this week. But I do just want to point out a few things. Um, in Daniel chapter 2 and in Daniel chapter 7, we've got this history of the Gentile nations. What's the future going to be like? Well, I'll tell you exactly. From a non-Jewish, non-Christian standpoint, he lays out for us, God lays out for us the history of the Jewish nations. In Daniel chapter 8, we take, it's like this, this uh, telescope gets closer. In Daniel chapter 8, we're dealing with Alexander the Great and and you know a, a big part of that because it impacts the um, 
the Middle East and the, the land of Israel. And so as you're going through this, we need to understand that some passages deal with the Gentile nations, and Daniel chapter 9 deals with the people of Israel. And you can't get those two confused. Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 speak of the time of the Gentiles. That's a phrase Jesus used in Luke 21. And it really began in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar besieged uh, Jerusalem and took it totally into captivity. And it will continue this time of the Gentiles until the second coming of the Messiah. In the middle, or towards the end, or interspersed in that, like an interlude, is the time in which we live right now, which the Old Testament prophets didn't understand. So you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel? He has his dream. And, um, uh, and Daniel's introduced in Daniel chapter 1, and he has this dream, and it's really troubling him. And it's in this dream, it's, 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 it's got him shook up. So he calls all his advisors and enchanters and soothsayers and all these guys with the black arts. And he says, hey, I've had this terrible dream, and I need you to tell me what the dream is and tell me what the dream means. And if you do, I'll reward you greatly. And if you don't, I'll hack you up in pieces and throw you out with the trash. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's not really a nice guy at this time. And so they go, okay, fine. We'll interpret the dream for you. You just tell us what the dream is. No, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is because anybody can interpret a dream after I tell you what it is. You tell me what my dream was because then I'll know you're not lying and I'll know God's speaking to you and then I will... uh, uh, and then I will reward you. We can't do that. No one's asked that of, that of king. I, I can't do it at all. Fine. You're all going to die. And so all the um, noteworthy spiritual people at that time, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were going to be put to death. And so they sent the soldiers out and they started hacking some of these people up. And when it came to Daniel, Daniel says, why the haste? Why is all this happening? And uh, the person that was there to carry out the king's order says, this is what the king said. And he goes, look, ask the king to give me just a little time. Uh, Let me pray, and uh, we'll see what happens. And so Daniel begins to pray, and it's kind of, um, it's it's really amazing. Um, um, Verse number 14, it talks about the fact that Daniel chapter 2, that uh, Daniel, of course, is having this conversation with the persons going about uh, getting ready to kill these people. And then that night, verse number 19, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And from verse 20 all the way to verse 23, it's just this wonderful praise of of Daniel towards his God. One of the things you don't want to miss in the book of Daniel is it's not only a book of prophecy, but it's a book of piety. We're looking at Daniel's life here and how he served the Lord faithfully and through, through, through different ruling kings, through several administrations, even when people tried to attack him, and he always gave glory to the Lord. And so in verse number 24, Daniel says, tell the king that we have the answer to his dream. So they brought Daniel in, and the king says, are you able to tell me my dream and what it means? And Daniel says, no, I can't. Uh, Nobody could do what you're asking. However, do you remember how it goes? There was a God in heaven. Giving glory always to God. There was a God in heaven. And verse number 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he, not me, has made known King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream is not about today. Your dream is about about, uh, your future. Your dream and the visions on your... uh, um, uh, visions of your head upon your bed were these. I'm just going to read this. As for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he, God, who reveals secrets, has made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. O king, you are watching, and behold, a great image. And this great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. It says, the image head was one of fine gold. You know the story. And the arms and chest of silver, the, the belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, and its feet, feet now, Partly of iron and partly of clay. 
that's my vision. That's, that's exactly what I saw. I, I saw this, this, this statue in front of me. Well, what happened then? Oh, that's where it gets good. While you were watching, verse 34, a stone which was cut without hands, nothing human made, which struck the image on the feet, not in the chest, not in the head, but on the feet of iron and clay, and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's exactly what I dreamed, Daniel. Now what does it mean? It's really simple. The Lord is revealing to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, and to us, and to everyone who has lived since then to today, that the outline, the general large outline of the Gentile world powers. The head of gold, he goes on to interpret from uh, verse 36 on, is you, king of Babylon. And after you will come another kingdom. Medo-Persia would come historically. And then there's Greece, which represents the belly and thighs of bronze. Then, of course, Rome is uh, this iron, this, this kingdom of iron here. And then there's something different. You've got these feet of, um, you've got these legs of iron, but then you also have feet attached to that that are mixed with clay. As a matter of fact, later on in this passage, it talks about the clay being ceramic clay. So there's Rome, there's historical Rome, and then there's somehow some future Rome. And when the future Rome comes, that this stone, which represents Christ, will come and it will crush all Gentile kingdoms, all of mankind, that the, the splendor of man and the military might of man will be like chaff. It will mean nothing. It'll be all swept away. And that stone, which defeated everything of man, crushing him in the feet and toes, will all of a sudden grow to be this massive, incredible mountain. It's the coming of the end of the Gentile world powers and the exaltation of Christ. Verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his knees and begins praying. And just, you truly, Daniel, have a God that knows truth. Okay. Well, God, if that's true, can you give us a little more detail? Yeah. Yeah, I'll give you a lot more detail because every time I share a prophecy, the grid is the same, but every time uh, a prophecy is shared, you're going to get a little bit more detail about what's going on. And so the next prophecy I wanted you guys to look at was in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel, by the way, now is 67 years old. Many, many years have passed. Uh, Kingdom has changed. And Daniel is having this vision And this vision doesn't come to the king. This vision comes to Daniel. And in Daniel's vision, rather than seeing this statue made up of four different elements, he sees these four beasts. The three beasts, he kind of identifies. The fourth beast, he can't even put a word to it. I don't even know how to describe it. It is dreadful and it is terrifying. And then he reveals more information to us about what happens with this fourth beast. We'll begin in verse number two. It says, Daniel spoke, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea from their vantage point. And four great beasts came out from the sea, each different from one another. The first was like a lion with eagle's wings. And I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. There's so much in here we're not going to be looking at right now. Suddenly, suddenly, now another beast, a second like a bear. And it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said, thus to it arise, devour much flesh. Three ribs prophetically happen to be uh, Libya, Babylon, and Egypt. But that's another topic for another day. After that, of course, you had this leopard, which moves with great speed. Verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. If you want to know exactly, so so that you don't think we're kind of making this stuff up, if you want to know exactly how the Holy Spirit helps you interpret this, we've got this leopard, we've got these four heads, 
We know historically that the leopard represents Greece and Alexander the Great. He died, of course, and when he died, he left his kingdom to the uh, to his four generals. If you go to chapter eight and look at verse eight, you will find in chapter eight it's it focuses in on Alexander the Great and calls him a you know a goat fighting against the ram. And in, chap- in chapter eight, verse eight, it says, "Therefore, the male goat." grew very great, which is Alexander the Great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, which is him. He died at an early age. And in its place, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. Back to chapter 7, if you would, because now we're going to be looking at this fourth beast, which we're most concerned about. Verse 7 of chapter 7. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast. What does it look like? Lion? Hippopotamus, it's nothing like that. I, I can't even describe it to you. The, the, um, the first three beasts, I'm telling you, look like a bear and like a leopard. But this one, in my frame of reference, there's nothing to even describe it. It was that horrible. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it because it had ten horns. So this beast is the strongest, stronger than the rest. This beast is terrifying. It's taken Daniel's breath away, and it also has ten horns. Verse 8, as I was considering the horns... There, and there was another horn, a little horn, coming up from among them, before whom the first three horns were plucked up out of the roots. And there, in this horn, there were eyes like the eyes of a man, and his mouth speaking pompous words. So I've got this fourth beast, and then we've got these ten horns, and out of the ten horns comes this little horn, and what defines this little horn is the fact that he says blasphemous, arrogant words. So much so that verse 11 says, and I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words in which the horn was speaking. I watched that a beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning fire, and then he starts talking about this other vision he has where the Ancient of Days comes and kind of restores everything. And Daniel is frightened. I mean, he, he should be. This, this absolutely um, overwhelmed him. Verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions in my head troubled me. I, I, don't, I don't know what this means. I, I don't know the future. I, I understand when I was younger, Nebuchadnezzar had this vision, and there was a rock, big stone came and crushed everything, and it blew it away. And Okay, but now there's this horrible iron or equated to an iron beast with these iron teeth and he's dreadful and, and these horns are coming up and this one horn is just saying pompous, arrogant things. And what am I supposed to do? How, how do I interpret? Lord, I need help in interpreting this. Verse 16, I came near to one of those who stood by me and asked him the truth about all this. And he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts are four, and four kings which arise out of the earth. Same four kings we have in Daniel chapter 2. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Then I wish to know about the fourth beast. I don't, I don't, I don't want to know anymore about the leopard. I'm not really interested anymore about uh, the one that got my attention is this fourth beast with the, the middle horn. Tell, tell me what that means. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with his teeth of iron and his nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with his feet. And the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before the which three fell, namely that horn which has the eyes and mouth and spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. That's my concern, Daniel. I mean, that's my concern 
Um, God, tell me, tell me what that means. Okay. And uh, he said this, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it into pieces. The 10 horns are 10 kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them. And he shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change the times and law. And the saints, then the saints will be given into his hand, and here's this key phrase, the most documented time in all of biblical history. For time, times, and a half time. Time, times, and a half time. For three and a half years. For 42 months, for 1260 days, you'll find through the book of Daniel. And then it goes to talk about the fact after that, that, um, but the ancient of days will come. He will set everything straight. He will rule and reign. And verse 28 says that, uh, Daniel says, I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with this. I don't want to tell anybody about it. God has given me a future, a, a glimpse of the future, and it's not going to be pretty. So if it's the same God who writes all the prophecies, then obviously they must parallel with each other. From Daniel chapter 2, we know that the head of gold is Babylon. From Daniel chapter 7, he's the lion. For in Daniel chapter 2, the chest and arms are of silver, the Medo-Persians. We find that the bear, who has three ribs in his mouth, which represents the three countries that they usurped to take world dominion at that time. In Greece, of course, is leopard that moves with great speed at the belly and thighs of bronze. That, of course, is the leper. And if you remember correctly, there's these four, there's this horn and it's cut off and in its place come these four horns, which is the names of his four generals, of which, from God's perspective, he only cared about two of them, Ptolemy and the Seleucids, who was one in Egypt and one was in the, in, uh, the land of Israel and above that. And so they constantly are fighting with each other. And the focus on God's people began to get more narrow and narrow. You have historical Rome, the Rome that existed. Uh, and then you have this future Rome, this feet and toes and, and kings. And, and then you've got this picture of the Antichrist all of a sudden is being shown as more revelation is given through Daniel. We have um, in Daniel chapter 2, we've got these legs and feet of iron. In Daniel chapter 7, it's beyond iron. It's this terrible beast, and I can't even describe it. In future Rome, you have 10 toes, which are mixed with clay, and it's during that time of this revived Rome, whatever that means, and we'll define that for you later, a stone comes which represents Christ in the kingdom of God and crushes it all. In Daniel chapter 7, instead of 10 toes, it's 10 horns. It's 10 kings, and out of one of those horns is a little horn, which is the Antichrist, who will get his political power somehow from the from the ten horns, and uh, speak pompous words in the times to come. Just so that you'll understand how relevant this is, I firmly believe the Antichrist is alive and well today. I mean, if you think about it, in every generation, since Satan does not know the day of the second return of, of his son or when all of this takes place, in every generation, Satan has to have prepared and in the wings his man, to assume all of this based on God's calendar, which Satan is not privy to. So I believe the Antichrist is alive and well right now, and all he's waiting for is things to turn in a direction that allows him to have worldwide uh, dominance, which is this new world order, which also has to deal with uh, news being able, you know, you'll be able to see the, the two priests or the Two prophets that are killed and laid out there for three days in the book of Revelation. All the world sees that and they rejoice and they give gifts to each other. That can only happen with technology. We have to have some system set up so somebody somewhere can decide that uh, Steve doesn't get to buy or sell anymore and push a button and all of a sudden you have no access to uh, any of your money or income or, or being able to, to buy the goods that you need unless you take his mark. All that's being put in place in front of us with digital currency and stuff of that nature. When I was growing up, they always talked about a cashless society. Oh, we'll watch out for the cashless society. Going to have credit cards, and pretty soon people won't carry cash with them. Who in the... Let me phrase that. 
You may be totally different than me. I can't tell you the last time I paid cash for anything. And why should I when my credit card gives me 1.5% on everything that I buy? You know? It's almost, like, it's almost like the credit card companies bait you, bait you, in order to move away from cash. And then, I mean, we're heading in that direction like you can't believe. One of the things that has to happen for the tribulation to begin is the Antichrist, who rises to some sort of prominence, has got to be so prominent that he's able to... to have Jews and Muslims come into agreement on something, he has to uh, secure a peace treaty with Israel. Well, no, you don't have to secure a peace treaty with Israel. We're Israel's protector. We always have been. We'll take care of Israel. It doesn't work that way in the end times. The only reason that the Antichrist is the one that they lean on to form this peace treaty is because we are no longer a factor in the world anymore. Can you see that not happening right now? I mean, we're, we're drawing down our petroleum reserves as fast as we can by design. We're shipping most of our armament so we don't even have enough bullets and guns and bombs and stuff, rockets to protect ourselves right now to Ukraine as fast as we can. And it's just nobody says anything about it. It looks like that the other two superpowers, China and, uh, China and Russia, are now bonding together. If we were going to have a war over Taiwan and a war in the Middle East at the same time, our, our military says we can't fight those two wars, and nobody cares. It's all by design. And then I shared with you about uh, last week about this UFO thing. That if all of a sudden some unidentified flying object landed on the White House and some guy came out like in the old day the Earth stood still movie in the 50s, we'd all go, wow, listen to what he has to say. And, and someone as noteworthy, who doesn't like controversy, Fox News runs articles this week about UFOs people have seen. And I see these little videos of these little probes and they're going like, yeah, that's exactly what that is. And being prepared for something crazy like that to happen. It's all happening right in front of us. And God is telling us for a reason. Because his kingdom is coming. His kingdom will be like the stone which destroys everything. And you and I are in him. Or in Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days receives the kingdom. We see that in Daniel chapter 4. And it lays out historically perfectly. Babylon, Medo-Persian, Alexander the Great, or Greece. We have Rome. Then we have these ten horns. And we find the dates. Just look them up historically. 605 to 539 B.C., we had Babylon. Then all of a sudden, the Medes and the Persians came in and ruled for almost two centuries after that until Alexander the Great showed up. And he only, I mean, he, he's like a leopard. He, he just cleared almost all of known civilization and brought it under his rule in you know, less than a decade, and then he died. And then after that, we had this kind of dead period. And then all of a sudden, Rome, uh, the official beginning date of Rome, of course, is 27 BC. And Rome lasted until 746 AD, unless that's Western Rome. If you look at Eastern Rome, actually, Eastern Rome didn't die. Constantinople and stuff didn't die until 1453 AD. And now we have this 10... Ten, this, uh, ten horns and this little horn, and all that will rule until Jesus comes. So we have moved from um, the Gentile nations, where now God wants to reveal to Daniel the history of his people. And so Daniel's reading, and he's reading in the, uh, the Old Testament, and he comes to a conclusion that, wow, we're only supposed to be in captivity for 70 years. And so verse number three says, when he figures that out, then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And he goes on, and he prays, and he prays, and he prays. And like the next 20-something verses deal with his praying and confessing of sins. God, show me. What is the history of my people? What is, uh, when, is, when is your king coming? When are you going to change all this? When are you going to bring us back into our own land? Verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins and the sins of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication for the Lord, my God, on the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, all of a sudden he has an angelic visit. And this is one of the archangels. This is uh, Gabriel. 
And he had seen Gabriel in another vision back in chapter 8, verse 16. But Gabriel is there, the man who I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reaching me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Daniel, I have now come forth from God's decree to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. So what is he asking about? What he's asking about is, tell me about my people. What's going to happen in my people, to my people? And so God reveals the vision to him. Now, what Gabriel tells him is the history of his people. What Daniel didn't see is something called a prophetic skip. What he didn't see is at the beginning of the vision, to the end of the vision, God, through his grace, inserted us. He brought Gentiles into the fold. He let the church exist. Uh, The Jews rejected Christ. It's almost like, and nobody knows this for sure, it's almost like um, when Jesus is standing there before Pilate, and Pilate says, I find no fault in this man, you know, I find no fault in this man. And, uh, and they said, you know, shall I give you Barabbas or Jesus? Give us Barabbas. Well, I'm washing my hands. The blood of his death is not on my hands anymore. And the Jewish leaders cried out. Remember what they said? Let his blood be on us and our children. And by the way, that phrase you'll not find in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, because it was originally in there and the Jewish powers to be didn't like it. And so they actually took it out. And it was almost like God said, fine, fine. And so he took Israel and set it aside. Still the apple of his eye, but he's no longer going to communicate his grace and his love and his will through the the nation of Israel anymore, as he has done for millenniums. Instead, now he birthed something new, which is the church, which is a combination of redeemed Jew and Gentile. And that church has a history where part of that church is a time of grace and the church will function until all of a sudden the, um, God says enough and we're done and he raptures the church out. And once he raptures the church out, it's almost like time back in and God's focus now becomes on redeeming Israel. And he does that through chastisement, through the tribulation period. Daniel did not see the distinction in that time frame, but it's clear in this prophecy that he probably should have. This particular prophecy has been called the backbone of Bible prophecy. It's God's prophetic clock, and if you want to find out more detail about it, you can kind of uh, read the passage leading up to that. But here's how he begins in verse 24. It is the most amazing prophecy, in my opinion, in all Scripture. He says, 70 weeks... 70 weeks or 70 groups of seven, we find out prophetically their years, are determined for your people, Daniel, and your holy city. Not the temple, not the tabernacle, but your people and Jerusalem. And then he gives six things that have been determined. There's going to be 70 weeks or 70 shabooms. It actually is 70 groups of seven that are going to be uh, determined for you to accomplish six things. One, to finish the transgression. Two, to make an end of sin. Three, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Doesn't exactly seem like that one's been accomplished yet, has it? To seal a vision and prophecy, and number six, and to anoint the most holy. I got that. Okay. I, that's the history. Well, when does it begin? When does it start? When does it end? The reason why I'm praying this prayer to you, Lord, is because I just read in Scripture, and I understand now that our Babylonian captivity is going to last 70 years. We're getting close to the end of that. So is there a, a time frame on this when we can expect all this to take place? And so God gives them them a beginning point and an end point. Remember, there's 70 weeks here. Verse 25, no one therefore understand from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's the beginning point. Until Messiah the prince or Messiah the king, there should be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's 69 of these 70 weeks that are going to begin with some decree that goes out to restore and build Jerusalem until Jesus comes as Messiah, recognized as Messiah. 
says, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troubling times. If you want to know exactly what time that is, it's really simple. You can simply see when uh, Artaxerxes gave the command uh, to go and rebuild the temple, not just the walls, I mean the city, but not just the walls. And you can actually look it up online. Encyclopedia Britannica will give you that date. Everybody knows what it is. It's May 14th, 445 B.C. And so, okay, so I've got, uh, I've got 77s. I've got 400 and. 90 years from that beginning until something happens. 69 of those weeks until Jesus comes. And then, of course, this other 70th week that Daniel assumed would follow right after. But there was a prophetic skip in there that brought about your salvation and my salvation, where God brought in the wild branch to be grafted into his vine. I won't, um, I won't go through the math with you, but it's... We will at some point in time, but it's really shocking that if you take those 490 years, and you again, you have a Jewish calendar, which is 360 days. We're under Gregorian calendar, which is 365-plus quarter days because of uh, leap years and stuff of that nature. If you take the Jewish calendar and convert it to the calendar that we're at right now, you will find there's from a Jewish calendar, there's 173,880 days that are supposed to take place. And if you look at the beginning date and look at the end date of that 69 years, you will find that it is fulfilled mathematically to the day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Only on that day. It was the only time in his ministry where he allowed himself to be claimed as king. Do you remember? He encouraged it. You know, uh, every other time it was like, no, 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 don't tell him who I am, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And just go, you know, go make the sacrifices you need for the healing that you got. But then they're like, you know, make your disciples stop. Listen, if they're not crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the rocks and stones will cry out. And prior to that, as Jesus is looking at Jerusalem, anticipating this day that they should have known mathematically fulfilled to the day from the prophet from Daniel chapter 9, he, he, he lamented and said, if you would have only known this day, the day of your visitation. Do you remember? 69 years fulfilled on that day. But there's one week left, and that week is known as the, um, the tribulation period, which the book of Revelation talks about in great detail. The tribulation period is a seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, where it is decreed to be about his, his people and his city. And the last half of that seven in a seven-year period, is known as the Great Tribulation. That's the name Christ gave it, which is time, times, and half times, three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. You find all of those phrases listed in the book of Revelation to describe the most documented time in all of human history, which could be right around the corner. So I'm going to close, and I'm just going to run through these really quick. I would very much encourage you to make a study of um, make a study of these um, passages, uh, especially the uh, the Daniel passage. But I want to give you some tips that'll kind of help you focus on that uh, if I can. And I'll go through these rather quick. One, this passage we looked at, it's all about a period of years, or basically a set of seven year periods. Total time, four hundred ninety years. Prophecy is about not the church. The prophecy is not about Gentile nations. The prophecy is about the Jewish people and their city. And the purpose of this 490 years is to accomplish those six things we find in verse number 24. Many of those have not yet to be accomplished. There is no everlasting righteousness that is brought into our world. Would you agree? I mean, if so, we're in big trouble, are we not? Number five, clock began ticking, March 5th. 445 B.C., the first 69 um, weeks, which is 483 years, is 173,880 days. It's a very simple mathematical equation. When you uh, factor out the leap years they missed, you change the calendar. It's fulfilled to the very day of the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And you have to, again, as you're going through this, understand the difference between the Jewish then the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. There are you can go on the you can go on the internet and find this done by by scholars. It's pretty amazing. Uh, there is a gap that Daniel didn't know about. 
between the 69th year or 69th week and the 70th week. There's that seven-year gap, this prophetic skip that is sitting out there in the future, getting closer to us every day, known as the tribulation period. Uh, and the last half of that is called the great tribulation period. And the 70th week will end when Christ comes back, defeats the enemy, and ushers in his millennial reign. It's a literal millennial reign. He literally will rule on earth for a thousand years, and you, if you know him, will have some part of that to rule and reign with him to what degree, I have no idea. Make sense? The last thing I want to share with you, this is not from me, uh, but it was so profound that I wanted to share it with you. In the book of Daniel, show what an incredible book it is. These are 20 things that you'll find if you study the book of Daniel predictive prophecies about things in the future. You'll find the successive rule of the four great world empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We've already looked at those today. You'll find the reuniting of the Roman Empire in the last days under rule of 10 kings or rulers. Is that a Western empire reuniting? Germany and France and England and all that. Or is that an Eastern empire, which happens to be mostly Muslim nations today? Something to think about. The appearance of the Messiah uh, to rule 483 years after it was decreed to rebuild Jerusalem. It was fulfilled at the triumphal entry. You'll find that the violent death of the Messiah is prophesied. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is prophesied. The rise of the Antichrist is prophesied. The beginning of the 70th week is prophesied. The Antichrist breaking the covenant in the middle of that where he sits on the Bema seat, demands to be worshipped as God, and that's when the great tribulation takes place and God pours out his wrath on mankind is all prophesied in the book of Daniel. Uh, his claim to be God is prophesied. His persecution of the saints of God's people, the setting up of the abomination of desolation in a temple that uh, will be built in Jerusalem. By the way, when I was 40 years old, my mom took me to, uh, as my 40th birthday gift, to Israel. This was almost 30 years ago. And I saw the, they have the ephrod of the high priest already there. You know, it's already created. I mean, they're just, they're just waiting for any moment when they can uh, build a temple, which they can do in a matter of weeks, and uh, institute Old Testament animal sacrifice and worship again. That very temple and the Bema seat, which the Antichrist will sit on and demand the entire world worship him. We find that the uh, book of Daniel talks about this Gog and Magog invasion, this northern-southern invasion where uh, they tried to destroy Israel and, and, um, you know, and, and the Antichrist and all of that. And it talks about the Antichrist defeat of those, uh, those armies. It then talks about Israel's defeat of the Antichrist army and the final doom of the Antichrist. Daniel talks about the second coming of Christ, about the resurrection from the dead, about the reward for the righteous, for the judgment of the wicked. One book in the Old Testament, includes all of this. Talks about the establishment of Christ's kingdom. Talks about this, which is really important, that in the end times you'll find this great desire and great knowledge of the Bible prophecy and about the end times. It seems like everybody's talking about that today. And that's all prophesied. All prophesied. So for next week... We're going to be looking at the Olivet Discourse, and I'm going to be going just as a survey over it like I did these two, because as we get more and more detail, we're going to be looking at these on an individual, sometimes almost a word-by-word -word basis when it comes to these prophecies to understand exactly what they mean and how they're being fulfilled. In the Olivet Discourse, which is found in three different places, we're primarily going to focus on the Matthew 24 and 25 passage, primarily Matthew uh, 24, because it is the blueprint of the end times. And next time we're together, that's exactly what we're going to do, is take a look at what Jesus says about the end times and tie it into Daniel and Ezekiel and some of the other passages. I hope in doing this that you will, like at the end of Revelation, not be fearful, but say, come Lord Jesus. I mean, come Lord Jesus. I mean, what does this world offer us? that is better than what Christ offers us and has already prepared for us. I hope, I hope it's a blessing to you. Let me, uh, let me pray.